0: On today's episode, we have Mike Brown. He's a former F-18 pilot and also someone with an age figure exit under his belt. And now he's transformed all his knowledge and investment powers into creating the Unbreakable Wealth Program. On this episode, there were some very, very interesting conversations. We talked about, first off, the 10 money stories that all entrepreneurs have in some way or another that basically cause subconscious interference and stop them from having the rich life they really want. We talked about personal examples, of what we both saw working with billionaires and interacting with billionaires, what we see in ourselves, sometimes what holds us back, and a f- exact framework on how you can make sure that you understand what's going on with you and what money story is possibly holding you back from your next level of success. Enjoy the episode. Could somebody else with your exact skill set be achieving more than you currently are? If so, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Ita Mamorani, ex-Israeli Special Forces, former undercover agent, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, and mindset and performance coach to over 106 to 9-figure entrepreneurs. Welcome to the Elite Performance Podcast, where we arm ambitious entrepreneurs with actionable mindset tactics that can stop playing small and win big. Welcome to today's podcast, everyone. I am here with Mike Brown. We had Mike on in the alumni, he did a workshop for everyone and people really, really liked it. And I asked him, would you be willing to come on the pod and share this with everybody else? And graciously said yes. So, Mike, thank you for being on, man. I appreciate you coming on board.
1: I right, appreciate it. Uh, I uh, had a blast in the group. And so looking forward to uh, jamming a little more with you.
0: Cool, man. So the thing that honestly, like, wanted me to have this podcast that caused me to want to have this podcast is a little thing you said in your presentation. One of the guys asked you a question. You were like, "Like, really, guys? Like, in general, there's about ten money stories that all entrepreneurs have. There's ten of them total. Like, you probably have one of them. And that's really what I want to talk about today. The main thing. Like, what are those 10, 10 main stories that you think entrepreneurs tell themselves that hurt their ability to have a better financial life, acquire more wealth, and growth, and so on? I'd love for you to, to share and break that down, Matt.
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. So uh, the first thing I think we I think we back up and, and talk about. Uh, what a money story is or, or why I define it that way. So for me, a money story means a subconscious pattern or, or subconscious programming that's running in the background uh, that uh, gives us the illusion of free will, but actually is directing the way we make decisions around money. So you know, a lot of us think that we're making data-driven decisions, but in fact, there's something that happened Either in our past, in our childhood and our adolescence, or even you know, during our adulthood and entrepreneurial journey, it's actually directing the show, and it's, and it's critical to determine what that programming is and kind of separate fact from fiction when it comes to decision- making. So at the core of this, really we're trying to get better at decision making and make more objective decisions. And so when we identify these stories, that allows us to go, "Oh yeah, this is that programming showing up again. Here's what the objective data is saying. And I'm not going to let this cloud my judge.
0: Does that make sense? It does. So basically you're saying these money stories are, it's called the block between an entrepreneur and knowing this is the right thing to do. And then them being able to actually to do it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and what happens a lot of times. And, and so this is all very much kind of from my own journey, right? I, I didn't uh, discover this by accident. I'm not a, a researcher. Uh, I'm in the trenches, as you mentioned, and yep. really is born of my own experience. And so uh, when I sold my company in 2019, uh, I should have had enough money to never work again. And uh, through some you know, quick financial decisions, I was rapidly deploying my capital into startups and various investments. Um, I, w- I was building this house, cost overruns started stacking up. I acquired a distressed company and all of a sudden two years after my exit, when I should have been completely set, I'm more stressed out. I'm I'm, you know, wondering how I'm even gonna make it and and how I got here, right? Ultimately after this life-changing amount of money. And so I dug into my own subconscious and go, okay, how did I get here and and what are the stories that that caused me to push through here? So, you know, a lot of times we hear now uh, people talk about trauma and Money stories could be construed as money trauma, but I I think that word uh, doesn't get the reverence it deserves. Right? So trauma can be very specific, very bad things that happen to people, but all kinds of stuff happens to us that shapes the way that we relate to the world. Doesn't necessarily have to be a trauma, but it can still imprint a pattern. So when I think about money stories, I'm thinking about how did how did I grow up in relation to money in my town. How did my parents relate to money? What did they demonstrate? What did I witness as a kid as it relates to money? And all of that shapes our money stories. And so now to get to your question, after doing this work for several years and talking to hundreds of entrepreneurs, it's, it's basically, there's only eight to 10 flavors of the same story over and over. And, and they kind of range from scarcity to abundance. And, and, and we hear a lot about, scarcity and abundance and oh if you just have a more abundant mindset wealth's going to flow to you and money's going to head your way and if you just get rid of your scarcity you know you're going to eliminate all these blockers and eliminating and and limiting beliefs but you know i think that those exist on a spectrum and the, the best place to be is actually neutral because i was incredibly abundant in fact i could have used a little scarcity because i was not being a good steward of my wealth so you know when i think about these stories they they all exist on a spectrum Uh, but here's an example. So I think the most common before we jump into it,
0: can I just like summarize what you said to make sure I'm understanding it correctly? Totally. So first off, in regards to like money stories aren't necessarily traumatic. So you just seeing the example that your parents laid out is not traumatic. However, it is the example and it's what your patterning ends up being. Is that correct? That's kind of what you mean by that. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say scarcity and abundance are not good terms, but I don't remember what you said like is in the middle.
1: Yeah. It's just finding neutrality between like neutrality. Yes. Yeah. I mean, scarcity is not inherently bad. Abundance is not inherently good, right? We give, we, we are meaning making machines. We give meaning to each of these things, but they just describe a way that we relate to money. And so one thing I help people do is reframe scarcity as instead of being bad, it's just like, Hey, I'm a good steward of my wealth. I'm a protector of the wealth that I've created. And I don't want to be frivolous with it. That's perfectly okay, as long as we're aware where that might show up as a limitation.
0: Question for you. Do you think, because my initial ping when I hear that stuff is that scarcity and abundance are more like emotional things. I want to be abundant. I want I feel scarce. They're not logical, rational, like neutral. I have no emotional attachment to this. This is just the correct action to take, so to speak, the more
1: effective one. Exactly. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's, it's eliminating the emotion or the, or the subconscious interference uh, from making better decision making. So, you know, I, I want to make objectively good decisions based on data and our programming keeps us from being able to do that. That's what we're trying to unwind with Unbreakable.
0: That's great. I love that term, eliminating subconscious interference. <laughs> it's a great tidbit. Cool. So yeah, please like share the, the money stories, how that all works. Man.
1: Yeah. So here, here's an example. Uh, I think the most common money story that, that we see is rich people are evil or money is the root of all evil or, or something along these lines, right? That, that having wealth makes you a bad person. And this is one of the oldest and, and greatest money stories ever told, right? Like We, we see uh, references in you know, religious texts thousands and thousands of years ago about you know, rich people uh, being evil. So if we grow up with this idea that rich people are evil, that they must have exploited someone to get their money, that, you know, they don't care about the poor or that, uh, you know, they're selfish, like all of these things are ingrained in our society. So what happens is as we grow up and then as we become more successful ourselves, we'll actually start to self-sabotage because if so, for example, if I grew up listening to my dad every night rail against rich people at the dinner table and how evil they were. If I, if I end up starting a company and start to accumulate wealth, my subconscious will actually do anything in order to avoid being labeled as evil by my dad. Like I am trying to escape judgment from my dad. Now, I don't know that I'm doing this on a, on a conscious level, but you know, the way this manifests is, uh, like me, like emptying my bank account as soon as money would hit it. Right. Because there's this subconscious idea that if I start to accumulate a great amount of wealth. My friends are going to judge me. My family's going to judge me. Like people around me are going to leave me. They're going to think I'm selfish. And so that results in self-sabotaging behavior unless we can kind of identify where those things came from and reframe back to neutral. As we said, remove that emotion.
0: Yeah. So that's money story number one, that too much money is evil. And the okay. way that kind of works is that we all have our preferences, our subconscious preferences. And most of us prefer to be loved by the, our tribe Then make more money. So if we think we're at risk of being loved by our tribe because we're going to make a lot of money, we make ourselves poor in a way in order to not lose that love. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and it and it and it may not. All of these exist on a spectrum, so it may not result in you know emptying our bank accounts and going back to poverty in this extreme example. But one way it definitely shows up is don't be too showy. Uh, If you're if you're showing off your money, you're rubbing poor people's face in it. You know these kind of things. So there is this really strong drive by society to kind of stay within inside the lines and make sure that you're not going off into territory that's going to make others uncomfortable. And so that's where this rich people are evil comes from is like, Hey, we want you to be successful, but not too successful because that's going to start making other people uncomfortable.
0: Question for you, because what you're saying here is an example that for your example, that you got really successful and then you didn't feel comfortable with that level of success. What I've also seen with a lot of entrepreneurs is that they actually stop themselves from getting successful. Is that the same, the same angle, so to speak, but just people take it differently, so to speak, why do you think that is that you gave yourself permission to find success, but then weren't comfortable with it. And some people don't even give themselves permission to find that success. what's yeah, the differentiator so, so
1: it's, it's a great question. And I think one of the core drivers that we have to work through with entrepreneurs, because you know, we'll only ever allow ourselves to be as successful as we feel we deserve. And that might be different for everybody. And these different money stories contribute to how much success is enough, right? And so all of us at some point will typically bump up against that limitation. For somebody, it might be $1 million. For somebody else, it might be $100 million. But at some point, these are going to start rearing their ugly head. And again, based on how we were raised or um, you know, what our parents were talking about and how they related to money, that's going to start manifesting. And they also fall into different categories. So, so uh, you know, when you talk about money is evil uh, or rich people are evil, that's kind of a, a guilt or a deserving or worthiness type story. And another one is I don't deserve what I have. Uh, and this, this really comes from people who grow up with wealth or inherit wealth relative to those around them. So what happens is, you know, imagine and, in, in, you know, I spoke to a, a client recently who grew up in a relatively poor country and his parents were relatively well off, you know, compared to those around them. Yeah. So they had servants, they had uh, a lot of help. And at six years old, he's looking around, he's seeing, you know, the kids of the servants versus his life. And he realizes there's this distinct difference in how they're being treated and his child brain is going, well, I didn't do anything different than that. Right. Like at six years old, you don't understand what the difference is or where this came from. And so that's the beginning of this guilt of I don't deserve this money. And so that's why we see uh, a lot of self-sabotaging behavior come from like second or third generation wealth. If they feel that, you know, they didn't do anything to earn the money uh, or, you know, they, another one. You know, work hard and you'll be successful. Like, you know, anything worth having is worth working hard for, right? Well, if they didn't work hard for their money, now we don't deserve that money, right? Yeah. And what's what's interesting is that some of these are true, right? Like, so you are going to feel judgment if you inherit a, a lot of money from society. Like people, people don't yeah. like that. Like they, they, they're envious. Uh, exactly. So. So some of these are actually real. Some of them are manufactured by the subconscious, but some of these actually do exist and we have to figure out how to navigate.
0: Yeah, this is really interesting because like, as you know, I used to work as the head of security for a billionaire. So I spent a lot of time in Monaco, in St. Bart, and all these really, really, really wealthy areas, like the most wealthy areas in the world. And I would see so many of the kids, they would just be trying to do anything to escape their lives whether it's drugs, drinking, or whatever it may be. And I I didn't understand that at the time because they didn't have that emotional lexicon, but they were just trying to find a way to blunt that feeling of guilt. Was like, how can I escape from this emotion? And right. it was so visible. that like, they, they don't like, something feels off, so they have to posture. They're very, like, nobody there seemed relaxed. They were very on edge. And there was so much drugs and so much drinking because they just wanted to run away from how they felt about themselves.
1: Yeah, and it, and it makes sense, right? Like, uh, you know... I'll- when I talk about this, uh, a lot of times people are like, Oh, boohoo, poor rich kid. But like, that's a real problem. You're born into this thing that you didn't ask for. And now, you know, everywhere you go. Uh, so, so here's a great example. I was, I was running one of my retreats and we're talking about money stories and there's a girl who goes, yeah, but what about Kylie Jenner? Like Kylie Jenner just burns me up, right? Like She's on the cover of all these magazines as a self-made billionaire. There's nothing self-made about Kylie Jenner. Like everything she has is because of her family. And that just pisses me off because I've had to work for everything that I have. And I was like, whoa, okay, well, <laughs> let me ask you a question. Right? <laughs> all right, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. We, we have these intense reactions. said, so, Okay. What would she have had to do to deserve that money? And she thought about it for a little while. She said nothing. Nothing that she could do to deserve that. And then I asked her another question, which is what would you have to do to to deserve that amount of money? And there was just silence. And then I'm telling the story to another client uh, a few weeks later. And I tell him, I get to the part about Kylie Jenner and how there's nothing that she could do to deserve that money. And he says, I felt that every single day in my life because this client was the son of a billionaire. And he had taken what he inherited from his family and he had generated a massive amount of returns with that money. He, he worked in private equity. He was on fund number four, you know, nine figures, uh, 10 figures of, of profits, return on assets, working 80 hundred hour weeks for years on end. He was completely burnt out. And the reason he was doing all of that, was because every day he could feel the judgment of every person around him that there was nothing he could do to earn that money. And so, you know, I asked him, uh, if you couldn't do what you're doing now, what would you do? And he, he had this whole life planned out. He was going to move to his ranch and ride horses with his kids, and all of this stuff. He was only in this whole world of, of private equity and building these massive funds because he felt this, this heavy weight since he was a kid.
0: Right? And, and You need to disprove it in some way, basically, to himself, to, to others, it. whatever it may be.
1: Right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult to, to put ourselves in that position if we weren't raised in that position. But, you know, what I've really found is, like, what a weight, what a, what a heaviness to be born with is something that you didn't ask for.
0: Yeah. So this is really interesting. I want to ask kind of a different question before we move on. Because this word, I don't deserve what I have. or I don't deserve, like, sometimes a lot of times I see it in entrepreneurs. I don't deserve to have that. Like it's kind of connection of the rich people are evil. I don't want to be one of that. And I don't deserve that level. So they keep themselves small. And a workaround that I found that's very interesting is that you take the whole deserve out of the equation by just saying earn. Like earn is sometimes for some reason, it's a more logical thing. Like have you earned it, yes or no? Can you build this company? Can you grow this company? Then you'll earn the cash returns from it. That's it. And deserve, like you said, it has a lot of religious connotations, I feel a lot of more like deeper, like what does that actually mean deserve? Nobody can quantify that. And I was wondering what are your thoughts on that use of vernacular, deserve, like is it harmful? Like, what are your workarounds? If I use earn a lot because I find that simplifies things. So people can be like, oh yeah, if I earn it, then yes, I can have that money, that's fine. Yeah. Because deserve well, is a bit and, weird.
1: And this is, this is when, I, when I work with these specific clients, this, this word comes into a lot because number one, Again, there's nothing we can do to deserve to be born a billionaire, right? Using that word. At the same time, we all inherently deserve to be wealthy and happy uh, by nature of who we are, right? Like the, the gifts of the universe that are bestowed upon us, like we all deserve all of the, the happiness and, and wealth in the world. And so, deserving, like you, like you just pointed out, is a, is a really loaded emotional word. And uh, at the same time, you know, earn probably falls in there a little bit because it it falls into this idea of like you have to work for what you have and it's only you only get it if you if it's attached to work right but like as we and this is really interesting like as we move forward as a society with the rise of machine learning and AI and robotics and like all of these things like we might start seeing jobs disappear at the rapid rate where now all of a sudden nobody has to work so nobody deserves money because we have basically automation taking care of all we of the things. It. So so like we're gonna have to answer this question as a society that hey, you only deserve what you have if you've worked hard for it. And and this was one of my like deep stories that that I kind of had to unwind because, you know, when I started my first business, my investment firm, uh, we were in a really good place at a really good time. We were we just got in right at the start of the boom in in oil and gas in the Permian Basin and in many ways, you know, yes, we made good decisions with the information that we had, but a rising tide lifts all boats. And like, we were very successful very quickly. And so years later, as I, as I was diving into why I was, you know, had this high-risk, high-reward mindset, I found that kind of at the core of it, I felt like I didn't deserve the money because I had made so much so quickly and didn't have to work hard in the traditional sense. Uh, in order to get that money, you know, I I worked smart. I took a lot of risk. I, I made good decisions, but you know, I wasn't. I didn't put ten years of hundred-hour weeks in to then finally find the success. And we love that entrepreneurial hero's journey, right? Like, oh yeah, no, you know, he he started in the garage and had nothing, and he and he, you know, he goes on this hero's journey arc, and like, okay, cool. Like, we're all fine with that. If that guy earns money or gets a, a massive amount of wealth, we're, we're great, right? But like, what if? the business takes off in the first year and all of a sudden it's they're an overnight success. Like we, we're not quite as comfortable with that.
0: Why do you think that is? I have my theory, but what do you think that is?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think number one, um, I, I love the four agreements. I like don't take it personally. It's not about, it's not about that person. It's about the inadequacies and the insecurities of the person, you know, doing the judging, right? Yeah. If we see someone with something that we don't have or that we possibly want, we make up a story as to why they're evil or why they didn't they didn't work hard to get that and and then it makes us feel better about our lack essentially yep
0: yep, yep. i agree with that Well, before we move on i wanted to ask something this was very interesting that you said it. i didn't want to cut you off though you said that like we all deserve wealth because of the universe i don't remember exactly the words and all that kind of jazz which is Probably very, very different than how both you and I were taught in the military in the background. So it's like, I'm from the Special Forces, you're from the Navy, like, you don't deserve shit. Part of my language. That was always what they would say. You don't deserve anything. You have to earn everything. That's how it works. Totally. And I'm curious, because that must have been a shift somewhere along the way that you chose I'm going to think this way. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Why do you feel like that's a better, more effective, let's call it money story, than just saying, like, we don't deserve anything, you need to earn what you earn. That's how the world works. No one's, you don't deserve anything.
1: Man, that's, that's such a good question. And um, if you think about it, that's a really effective way for the military to manage people and to get performance out of people, yep. right? And so the military has one objective, right? And that is to kill people and break things and use you as a tool to do that. And so, you know, our military training is really effective for creating that result but it's not necessarily effective for creating a great human on the, on the backside. And, and that's why we see, you know, uh, whether it's, it's labeled as PTSD or, or like, that's why we see a lot of these things manifest later is because we get really efficient with exactly what the military asked us to do. But then once we leave, there's no rehabilitation program. We're going, Hey, all this stuff that you shoved down here, it's got to go somewhere. And I, and I know you're deeply familiar with that, right?
0: Yeah. Like what I've noticed, it doesn't create a sense of agency in the individuals how to live a better life. Like, I think we, like you and I are probably, like, and I know a lot of people from the social is from the agency. I've also met a lot of British, like SDS or Navy SEALs when I was working for the billionaire. We're probably two of the wealthiest financial, like, the most successful financial people that I know that have come out of that. And there's a reason for that. But yeah, I'd love for you to, to dig into it. I think this is so interesting because you changed your money story. This is very clear.
1: Yeah. So, you know, after I got out of the Navy, I, I went. And uh, you know, worked for a a mentor in my hometown, and then eventually started my own company. And I was forced to change because all of a sudden I was thrown into this world of wealth and success. And you know, even though I always dreamed of starting my own company and and becoming rich and successful, like when it came, I had to go. I had to start unwinding some of this stuff. Um, And and so, you know, uh, essentially, I had to uncouple the idea that. Uh, money was tied to hard work because my money was tied to smart investment decisions, right? The, the smarter the, the, that I deployed, the, the smarter I was when I deployed my capital, the more money I would make. And sometimes those decisions only took 15 minutes, right? It might, it might take six months of searching, but like when I make a decision, Hey, you know, this is a 15 minute decision. My outcome is not tied to how hard, You know, if I if I work twice as hard looking at a deal, it doesn't really change the outcome. Right. It's is this a good deal or is it not? So, you know, I think the purest form of this would be like a Wall Street trader who, yeah, they can work hard doing research and all of that, but really they're making split decisions using the data and their return can be completely outsized the amount of work that they put in. So it really brought this kind of idea of like work hard and you'll be successful front and center for me because I was decoupled from that, that, that hard work. Like I was, I was making smart decisions or bad decisions, right. And losing a lot of money.
0: So going back, help me again, get to the point where like we all deserve to have financial success. Cause that, like when you said that, I was like, "Mm," something in me was like, I don't like, (laughs) that doesn't make sense to me. I don't align with that. And I'm curious, cause obviously I respect your opinion on this. I'm curious why you think that that's a more I view yeah, but, you. Let's put it this way: I view you as yeah. a very rational individual, and a very logical one, and you're very results oriented. Usually, when people say everyone deserves everything, it's a kind of fluffy woo-woo crap. You know, like everyone deserves, so they all sit in like a circle by themselves and the flowers and have a good time. So I'd love to like hear your perspective on this because it's not what you usually hear from someone who's as pragmatic as you are.
1: Yeah, this this is a is a much deeper conversation, but kind of would play into. uh, you know, going on this healing journey and and diving into uh, not only you know trauma work via therapy and and psychedelics and you know, PTSD and like learning about all of that, but also diving into meditation and Buddhism and the spiritual world and and kind of understanding that we all have a higher self and we are separated from that self by you know nature of existing in this world, right? Like the the only constant for humans is suffering, and that suffering keeps us. From being able to access our highest self. So, everyone's highest self deserves wealth and freedom and abundance and joy, but our actions aren't necessarily aligned with our higher self. So, to me, our mission here on earth is to figure out how we can align our actions and how we can become the best version of ourselves in order to bring ourselves in alignment with that best version of ourselves. Does that make sense? So, I'm not saying that. People who are lazy or people who are you know, immoral or any of that, like deserve money in their current state, but their highest self, their, their best self does deserve wealth and freedom. And so it's up to them to go on the path of, of finding that version of themselves.
0: Does that make sense? Uh, let me try to articulate it in a different way see if I'm understanding correctly. You're basically saying everyone is worthy of financial success if they do the right things to put themselves in alignment with the best version of themselves that they could be.
1: They have that to correct? choose it, yep. yeah. Like we can either choose to stay in our pain and and wallow in victimhood and misery, or we can choose to do the hard work and go on the path of personal development and introspection and you know uh, uh, making the hard moves that eventually re- result in uh, you know becoming that best version of ourselves. Like it's not easy. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like it's it's well, much like, easier for to me. That, in that victimhood makes sense. Like I get that with that. Like if you're saying everyone can can be worthy of it if they decide to take the actions to make themselves to that level, to get themselves to that level, but yes, absolutely I get that. Yeah. But I wanted to clarify that. That makes sense to me. Like what yeah, I'm saying, totally. how you resonates with you.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm willing to have uh, a, a difference of a, of opinion on it, but you know, I I, I do think that there, uh, that that consciousness and, and our nature of existence is a, is a divine gift. And we all have the choice of what, what do we do with that? And yeah. uh, it's, it's unfortunate that so many people on this planet are stuck in suffering and, and squander uh, the beauty that is this, this one life. Yeah.
0: Cool, man. Well said. Alright, so we got number one, rich people are evil. Two, I don't deserve what I have around guilt. Yeah. What are the next ones? Uh,
1: so we actually have already uncovered one, which is money requires hard work, right? This is, this is kind of tied to that hustle, that grind, and there's shame if we, if we don't have to work hard for money. And then another one, this goes back to what you said is like, hey, this, this idea of self-sabotaging, we're all familiar with the fear of failure. Hey, I'm going to start this company. I'm going to work my ass off so that I don't fail publicly. Yeah. Like That's really scary. But fear of success is actually a little more insidious, right? Which is, I'll do just enough to get by. I'll be just successful enough, but I'm not going to really swing for the fences because I'm afraid of that judgment of peers, of family, of people I grew up with. Like, you know, we are really tied to our tribe, and we're terrified of being an outcast. And if we, the more we separate ourselves from the people that we came up with, the more scary that feeling is, and the, and the more we have to face uh, that fear of success. And so you know, that's a really prevalent one with, with entrepreneurs. And, and like I mentioned earlier, it doesn't matter if that limit for you is a million or a hundred million, like everyone's going to bump up that, against that yeah. limit, that self-imposed limit. And it's really how do we transition to the other side of, of that self-imposed upper limits problem. So Gay Hendricks has a great book um, about this called the, the big, big leap, leap, which is, yeah, exactly. Like how do we transition when we start to bump up against the limits of our success, how do, we, how do we take that, that leap to use his language to the other side? And uh, it's, it really isn't identifying where that limit is coming from.
0: Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about it. I think it's so interesting. So the fear of success, the fear of failure, I think it's easy for people to support you. Oh, you're not feeling good about yourself. Like, let's prop you up. The fear of success, like, you're already doing better than us. And you're like, not comfortable about doing even better. It's like, that doesn't, like, I don't care go go to hell you know what i mean like so to speak boo-hoo. like it's yeah exactly yeah. boohoo better better said like boohoo and i think that's a challenge of it because it's hard for people to get support from their old circle about it your old circle will support you if you fear a failure because you're in a weak position but when you're in a strong position and you say i'm like oh i'm not getting even three times stronger financially than you guys are people will usually have that response boohoo and i think that's why a lot of entrepreneurs like it's it's hard for them to deal with the fear of success because they can't really talk to it with anyone. They can definitely talk about their fear of failure. They can talk about it with their mom, with their dad, with their siblings, with their friends. So like that's something that other people can empathize. with. But it's hard for other people to empathize with the fact that you're already successful and you're afraid to be even more successful.
1: Yeah. I, I would actually back it up one step further. Most entrepreneurs, when they first hear about fear of success, go, oh, that's not me. That's not how I, okay. <laughs> I. I don't. I don't limit myself. That's that's definitely yeah. not me, right? And it's only after you start really diving into conversation and and pointing some of these things out, you start to go, oh, the light bulb comes on, and they go, wow, I might have been limiting myself. And and you know, I I think about this all the time, like, uh, you know, especially for let's let's say like above average intelligent, because like like school was always pretty easy for me, and so. I was always afraid to play full out and, and Elliot Rowe actually has a great uh, thing that he talks about here is like, if, if you told, if you were told your whole life that you can do anything you put your mind to because you're so smart, then you will make sure that's the case. Meaning yeah, you, you will only try run. to do things that you know you can succeed at, which is a very insidious form of playing small. So like when I, even when I think about my first company, like, I made a lot of money and it felt really good. But there's a part of me that knows like if, if I had had that governor, that fear of success off, like I could have made 10 times what I made. If I was really swinging for the fences and I was completely unafraid of what that would mean and what that, and, and if I was completely unafraid of, of the failure, right? So that's where the fear of success and fear of failure kind of marry up is we'll try things, but only things we really know we can be good at.
0: I have a question for you. If I may like price some coaching out of you while we're yeah. here. Yeah. So my situation is this, that I grew up in, uh, in an, like, let's say upper, upper middle class. And I was always comfortable with the idea with it's a Jewish mother that always tells you, you can be whatever you want to be or whatever it may be that I'm going to be extremely successful. I always knew it. Like I always had that inherent belief in myself. My wife, however, she grew up in a very different environment. Like her parents, like they tried to grow their business. They owned a bunch of laundromats. They tried to grow it. And in 2008, they grew it at the wrong time. They overstretched and they got because of it, they lost everything. Mm-hmm. And what I notice a lot of times with her, and she's very aware of it, is that as I've kind of ascended financially in this career of entrepreneurship, it, it feels unstable to her, like this rise, because she associates that with, okay, this is going to be that. And she's a phenomenal individual on all levels. And she's aware that's what's going on. And she doesn't, like, when we're flying business, like, she has that little bit of like discomfort almost, like, what was supposed to happen. And she definitely is extremely aware and extremely conscious that she doesn't try to bring that onto me. She knows she doesn't want to put that limitation on me to try to slow me down for her emotional comfort. But it's obviously still there. What are your thoughts around that? How would a spouse, because it's not just the entrepreneur himself, but the spouse, sometimes, how do you deal with those kind of dynamics?
1: Yeah, so what I talk about uh, is a personal development. And the first step you've already identified is awareness. She's, she's aware that this pattern is coming up. And, and it makes sense, right? Like our brains are pattern matching machines. So when she was growing up, she saw as her parents reached this height of success, it was all taken away. So what happens? This idea gets imprinted on our brain. When we reach the height of success, it all gets taken away, right? So that's going to keep us from pushing and, and it's designed to keep us safe. So the way I like to think of it is like Marie Kondo, like, thank you for your service. You've kept me safe up until this point, but now I no longer need this pattern in place in order to keep me safe. I'm actually ready to move on to a new higher version of myself, right? So the second step on the loop is insight. So, okay, now we know where this came from. We know that it came from this 2008 crash and we know that's the place we're actually going back to. Step three is action, okay? So now when when I'm aware of this pattern, I know where it's coming from, what is the action that i can take in the moment in order to repattern this thing and this can go from kind of emotional like identifying the feelings in your body and going hey you know you know how old is this is how is this how i felt during 2008 when i saw this crash it can go all the way to like practical let me let me break out my personal network spreadsheet and go okay here's all the investments that i have that are keeping me safe in the case of a crash right and maybe it's a combination of both so there's all kinds of actions that we can take. And the more we do that, we begin to repattern our brain so that eventually we no longer have that feeling coming up. And that's, that's integration. That's the kind of last step in the cycle. But then it's actually a loop because we always need to maintain that awareness. Even after we've integrated these actions enough times and it becomes second nature, that pattern can still come back and rear its ugly head. And we see this all the time. It's like, oh man, I thought I was over that. Or I, th- I thought I healed that. Or I thought I got rid of that. And, and the fact is like, we probably never really get rid of it. We just become faster at identifying it and, and, and snapping out of it.
0: Yeah, like we have an expression in Hebrew around that. It's like, same lady, but in a different dress. It's like, it is going to keep following you for your life. And like to be aware of that. But I think it's great, man. So to summarize, it's like the way what I heard from you right now is that it's similar to how you graduated from one money story to the next. It's about graduating from money stories. That's a theme I recognize in how you speak. And it's like first being aware, like this is a money story I need to like, graduate from. Then thanking it for how it served you and understanding also where it can still serve you, perhaps, with context. Not just as a black and white thing, which is really crucial. And then taking the action to repattern, whether it's being aware of, like, okay, what happens to my body that caused me to revert? Or just having a tactical awareness, like how you said the spreadsheet, like, this is actually just an imagination thing. This is subconscious interference, like you said, instead of a logical response. And then the integration and the awareness. That's kind of the loop. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, you, you nailed it. Uh, I, I need you as my AI note-taking device. You (laughs) summarize things really well.
0: (laughs) Go ahead. All right. So we got four money stories so far. Rich people are evil. I don't deserve what I have because of guilt. Money requires hard work and the fear of success.
1: Yeah. All right. So, uh, another one is manifested in this idea of like risk and worthiness. So, uh, the money stories here are I'm irresponsible with money. I make bad decisions. Uh, I don't worry about money. Uh, and then, you know, my self-worth is my net worth. All of these things can result in like compulsive spending, you know, materialism, self-sabotage, taking excessive risk and, and all of this, you know, so I can kind of give you my own journey of risk, which is basically, uh, I grew up squarely middle-class, uh, but there was five kids and there was certainly not enough money to go around. and. Uh, I watched my parents fight every night of my life and my parents only fought about one thing, money. Right. And so as a child, I'm watching this and I go, okay, I'm going to make so much money that I never have to worry about this. I don't want this for myself. So I'm going to make enough money where I don't have to fight with my spouse every night about money. And that really worked, right? Like, it, like if I'm going to choose a, a money story to have, like that, that's one that really serves me and, and drives me to go to the Naval Academy and, and you know, start a business and all of the things that I eventually did. But at some point that becomes a limitation. And so here's how it manifested for me as a limitation is, I'm not going to worry about money means I'm not going to be responsible with money or I'm not going to respect money, right? So, so being responsible became equated with, worrying about money in my brain. And so now I just had this easy come, easy go mentality of like, you know, the money rolls in, I can invest it or spend it just as quick as it comes in. And oh, you know, I'm always going to have more. Uh, and so that it's resulted like, in this really high risk, high reward, self-sabotaging type behavior.
0: So if I may, so basically what you're saying is that you kind of like your coping mechanism to money being like you equated money equals stress, worrying about money, thinking about money equals stress. The coping mechanism is going to close my eyes, not look at it. And then everything won't be stressful.
1: Exactly. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm smart. I can just go make more. If I lose all this, that's okay. I'll just, I'll just go make more. Right. Again, yeah. super uh, uh, beneficial for an entrepreneur to have until it becomes a limitation. Right. And that's then, and that's exactly what happened with all of these stories or all of these patterns is that they can really drive us to our success. And so one of the things people ask me about when they step into this work is what if I lose my edge? And my answer is, if your edge is built around one of these stories or around one of these traumas, like you might lose your edge temporarily. But then what happens is we free up space to create a new edge, to create a new way to use our gifts and talents uh, that isn't driven by fear but it's driven by a more abundant or or a more creative place because we've replaced old programming with superior program. We've graduated. As you said, I really like that.
0: Question for you, because when, when you said about that, it's a really good trait for entrepreneurs to have that kind of like, let's go for it, just swing big, whatever it may be. The way I initially thought you were going to go with this is you weren't going to say, okay, let's, let's temper that a little Instead, let's contextualize this. Let's recognize this is a really good offensive trade. This is not a good defensive trade, and you need to understand when you're on offense and when you're on defense. Because what was interesting to me when you did the workshop for the for our group, we talked a lot about risk and like you said, okay, guys, like you're, the business is the thing that you actually know and gives you a lot of returns. So when you're investing, your other castle things low risk and things that you don't have to go crazy about. And I would wonder like your perspective on that, and not necessarily taming something, but Contextualizing and deciding, okay, this is something going to use on the offense, and this is a money story that I'm going to use on defense. And being able to differentiate between having that awareness.
1: I love that. You're 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 exactly right. Like we have to shift our mentality at some point from being an accumulator of wealth to a defender of wealth.
0: Because do you think sorry, just to dive in, and I'm sorry I'm interrupting, but I think this is really important. Go send it. Do you feel like that's a binary we have to shift, or is it a constant day to day? Like when I'm in the office between eight to five, and then when I'm doing my wealth management in the afternoon or whatever it may be.
1: No, I think it it exists on a spectrum. So, you know, if, if we look at accumulator of wealth over here and defender over here, the more money we make, the more we start needing to shift along that spectrum. Like at some point, if you exit for hundreds of millions of dollars, like now your primary concern is defense. But, you know, as you build, maybe it's 70, 30, maybe at some point it becomes 50, 50. Right. So, so it's, it's a process, but it's just like, you know, when you, when you look at uh, being a startup CEO versus a scaling CEO, like a startup CEO wears all the hats, they're scrappy. They, they do whatever it takes, burn the boats. But at some point, if you're scaling a 10, 30, 50 million dollar company, like you can't wear all the hats anymore. That's going to break your company. Like you have to learn how to delegate and become a new version of that CEO. And the same thing goes with, with personal finance. Like, like when I was just starting out, like let's swing for the fences. Like let's go all in. There's, there's, I have very little to lose so I can take massive risks because it's just going to, you know, I don't have anything to, to lose. But once I have something to lose, now I've got to think about how am I going to defend that? And, and so for entrepreneurs, when I talk about this, this risk cycle is if you have a business that is, that is growing or, or headed in a positive direction, you already have a vehicle to lead. Like You already have something that you can invest in that is going to grow faster than any other single investment that you can make. It's something that you understand. It's a known quantity. So this is the best return that you can possibly get is investing in your business. But at some point, it makes sense to start taking some money out of that business. So all of our eggs aren't concentrated in that one basket. But as we're taking money out of the business, our tendency Is to do the exact same thing that we've been doing, which is risk it all and go go all in on risky things, right? But that money should actually be used to create safety, so kept in very liquid assets. Maybe it's a high yield, you know, savings account, uh, which seemed, you know, me five years ago, like that seems super boring. (laughs) Uh, But I could have used a little, a a, a few boring investments, right? Because I I was always swinging for the fences, and and that's kind of how I wound up in that in that stressful cash trap situation because. Like, I didn't need any more home runs. I needed some singles. That's it. And so, you know, if we have a vehicle to beat the market, that's where our risk should all be concentrated. Everything else should be used to hedge risk and create safety in case all of a sudden this primary business faces headwinds, economic downturn. Like, there are things that are out of our control that can happen to our business. We want to be prepared in that case. And that's where this, this kind of idea of the safety net comes from.
0: So basically, that's your barbell strategy for entrepreneurs. For people who actually have something already inherently risky in their portfolio, which is their business. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. All right, man. So we got one rich people are evil Two: I don't deserve what I have. Money requires hard work. Three, four, fear of success. Five, I'm irresponsible with money. Six, my self worth is my net worth. And seven, I don't need to worry about money. Yep.
1: That's that. So the, the, uh, last ones, um, is, kind of rooted in safety. So, um, you know, there will never be enough. Right. And, and I've got a a example, you know, at my, at my first retreat, there was two guys there. One had just, or or one uh, was making $16 million a year and spending 17 million. Right. He's on, he's on the high risk, high reward. You know, I'm not going to worry about money. The other guy just sold his company for $16 million. It was all in a, in a savings account. He hadn't made a single investment. He didn't buy himself a new pair of shoes, a new a new car, and he was still working 80 hours a week. And he told us that his greatest fear was that he couldn't send his kids to college. Right? And and literally we all may laugh at that, but but you know deeply ingrained is like there is not there no amount of money will be enough to create safety. And so, you know, who knows where that where those stories come from, but you know, again, if you if you saw your parents at the height of their success, lose everything overnight, you know, that can, that's where a lot of these lack of safety type stories start to creep in. So, you know, uh, there will never be enough kind of results in frugality or, or, um, uh, there's, there's another guy I know, you know, tens of millions of dollars in the bank, like, like very, very successful entrepreneur. And, uh, we were, we were getting ice cream one day and they, and he asked for some toppings. I think he asked for chocolate chips and the person goes, okay, well, that's going to be extra. And he was like, oh, never mind that." <laughs> right. And, and he was, he's like, well, it's like, it's like 75 cents. And he's like, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but we see this all the time. Like, like they're like, we don't allow ourselves to enjoy the wealth that we have because we're, we're caught up on this, in this frugality or lack of safety. And, and it leads to this hoarding behavior. And, and this can be passed down like generationally, right? Like, I mean, we see a lot of, of people whose, you know, grandparents were, you know, in the depression or, you know, in the Holocaust, like there is a lot of real trauma that is passed down generationally of like frugality is very, very important culturally to people that survived those events. So it may not even be something that happened to us. It could have happened to our ancestors and it's just been passed down generationally.
0: Yeah. And I think you said something here that's really interesting. Is I can see somebody in the audience like listening to this and thinking, "But well, that's more effective. That's a more effective way of getting more wealth. And the reality is that might be true, but I think what you're talking about here that people really need to resonate with, it's not just about accumulating wealth. Wealth is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. And if you can't enjoy the chocolate chips on your ice cream, because that's your goal, you're probably missing, you know, you're missing the trees for the forest. It's
1: a, it's a poverty mindset. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much money go, you have, right? Exactly.
0: And I think that's a really I, important thing I to can't recognize I chocolate
1: chips is a poverty mindset. And you could have hundreds of millions, you could have billions in the bank. If you can't allow yourself to enjoy the fruits of your labor, like you're always going to be poor. Yeah.
0: You're going right, to le- so, lead a poor life. And I think that, that's, what's really important for like, the, I want to hone this in for people that are listening. In. It's that you have to understand what the purpose of your money story serves. Is it only to accumulate more wealth is it actually enrich your life? And because that's what the whole purpose of this correct me if I'm wrong, but your approach to this. It's that's not it, just to right? accumulate more dollars in the bank account But actually how can you live a richer life?
1: So with people, I always start by defining what wealth is. If we're going to sit here and talk about wealth, we need to understand what we're actually talking about. And whenever we do like a group collective definition of wealth, we usually start off by talking about money. But the definition that we all agree on never ends up really about money. So I define wealth as four things freedom of time, freedom of mind, freedom of health and freedom of relationships. Because all the money in the world doesn't matter if we don't have freedom in those areas. Right? So wealth is really about freedom. And so money is just a tool to create non-traditional wealth, which is which is freedom in those in those four particular areas. So money is just a tool and and on the other side of things like earning money is just a Reflection of creating value in the world, solving a problem that needs solving, like that is money's keeping score for those things. It can be then used to create freedom. Yeah.
0: Oh, this is a big one. All right. So we're at number eight. What are the rest of them?
1: Uh all right. So uh another one that we see quite often, and this falls back into the kind of that guilt deserving worthiness category, is money's not for me. So it's okay to spend on other people, but it's not okay to spend on myself. And, and you know, we see this, uh, and, and, I, and I don't like being gender normative uh, because this can manifest in anybody, but we see this a lot manifesting in women. Like, it's okay to spend on my children. It's okay to spend on my husband, but, like, I'm not going to buy a pair of shoes unless they're on sale. Right? And, and um, unfortunately, this is a, again, societal I think, uh, has its roots in, in kind of that, that masculine society or the, or the patriarchal society where men control the purse strings and women are only allowed to spend what their husband says, you know, this kind of drawing back to, uh, you know, the last few centuries. Uh, and that, that is really real for a lot of people, but again, especially women is, you know, money is not for them. And so I, I saw one business owner, um, and, and this woman is a, is a powerhouse. She created a multi seven figure business and she was paying herself $35,000 a year. And no matter how much profits there were at the end of the year, she'd find a way to reinvest them, hire new employees, hire ex- consultants, you know, spend it on coaching. She would do all of these things, but ultimately she would only take home 35 grand a year. Yeah. And when we started to dig into her money stories, we found out this is not the first time in her history, Like. She's been doing this her whole life, starting you know, in high school. She was earning money at a job and giving it all to her boyfriend, who was less well off than her. And uh, she bought real estate in her 20s, and she was not making her tenants pay rent because they needed the money more than she did. Like, this was a deep pattern that had existed in her whole entire life. And like, you n- like, it, you know, if I, if I told you who this person was, like this is a massively successful entrepreneur yeah. who is, is beholden to these stories. So, you know, these are incredibly insidious and, uh, it's amazing. Like once, once we identified this idea that money is not for me, she immediately started paying herself $35,000 a month that day, made the decision, called the accountant (laughs) and and switched it around. Right. So, so, you know, there there's, I think a limiting belief that this has to be hard. Like once we identify this now, it's going to be really hard to repattern myself. Like sometimes we get better information. Like we can just update our programming and go, oh, okay, that doesn't serve me anymore. I'm just going to switch this now. Yeah.
0: I think it's interesting when you said she's a very successful entrepreneur. I think there's a difference between being successful entrepreneur and successful at living a rich life. And from what you're saying, all these money stories, they're that unconscious uh, distraction or that barrier from you actually living a rich life and being successful at living a great life.
1: Yeah. That, uh, that- is so well said. That's exactly right. I mean, most people when you know they come to, to me or or your program, quite frankly, like uh, most entrepreneurs got into business because they didn't want to have a boss, they needed the freedom, they, they there was all these ideas that they had, and now their business owns down, right? They're a slave to their business, they they're working 80, 100 hour weeks, they're super stressed out, and they're like, What what am I doing here anyway? I'm missing time with my kids, I'm building this thing. And it's almost like this compulsion, right? And it really is all about like determining what are our values and then aligning our actions to our values. So to me, uh, a saying I love is like, show me your bank account and show me your calendar and I'll show you what you value. Yeah. Well, I like to turn that on its head and go, hey, let's, let's build a life of intention. Let's build our perfect calendar. Let's decide how we want to allocate our money that actually serves our values and make that a reflection of who we Yeah, this
0: is, I work in a very similar way. So when I try to take an entrepreneur, let's say from six or seven to eight or nine or whatever it may be, I first say, okay, like, let's be intentional about it. How would somebody at the next level of your success need to operate at? And then we say, okay, this is the kind of what values they would need to hold, what they would need to prioritize in life. Then let's instill that into very clear action. Now, and only now that we're clear what your next evolution is, let's figure out what old stories, old mental blocks, whatever it be, are holding you back to that. And from exactly. what I'm hearing from you, like, that's how you utilize these money stories you're saying, okay, let's figure out how you should think about yourself if you want to have a really rich life. Now, after we're clear on that, which one of these Ted Bunny stories do you think is interfering with that? Because that's the one we need to work on. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's it. And, and I and I'll also, uh, I want to be clear that most of us have three, four, five, six, seven of these all working yep. in, in tandem, right? So it's, it's rarely as cut and dried as like, this is the one thing that was holding me back. Like usually there's layers of fear of success and rich people are evil and money is not for me. And they all kind of create this blend of, of different limiting beliefs that are keeping us stuck. But yes, in, in essence, what you're saying is, hey, okay, let's map out what a rich life or, or what uh, the life, my ideal life actually looks like. And now let's just work backwards. And here's the amazing thing. Like, 95, I'm, make, I'm making up a stat, let's call it like 95% of the people that I work with are actually already within striking distance of their ideal life because they don't need more yep. money, right? They just need to, they need to make some adjustments with how they're spending their time and, and how they're aligning their actions to their values. Because you know, most entrepreneurs, if, if you're kind of in that successful, you know, uh, bucket and you're looking for kind of, you know, more fulfillment, probably already have enough money to live, to live an epic life.
0: Yeah. Cool man. So, do we have one more left, or did I mix yeah, two? Yeah, you've
1: been keeping track. I love it. So, uh, the last one is is rare, but it's definitely um, uh, very pervasive and insidious in our society. Which is, money is a tool to exert power, and and so, you know, there are uh, one example is you know I, uh, I had a client who talked about growing up. Uh, Her dad would work all day. He would come in and he would throw money on the floor and make her mom like run down and and pick it up off. Right. Like, and and so a lot of times we'll see money as a tool to control the people around us. Um, Or, you know, again, husbands who give their wife a strict budget or, you know, give them grocery money and, and, and control the purse strings as a way of controlling their environment. And and again, that manifests. Uh, you know, a lot of times we see people who are raised uh, in that paradigm either, you know, continue that paradigm and and use money as a tool to exert power, or go full opposite and go, yeah, I don't I don't want any money, right? Like I like that. I see that it's used to emotionally control people, and so I'm gonna go live van life and have no possessions and 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 be super happy. Like when we dig yeah. into that kind of van life mentality. A lot of times we'll see this story at its root somewhere.
0: Yeah, I can, I can see that in myself from previous self. When I finished working at the special forces and then in the agency, which in the agency I made a relatively a lot of money for a very young kid. And I didn't like the constructs over there that like, you don't have entrepreneurial freedom. You know, you're supposed to follow things because like any misstep you take can be extremely consequential. So they don't really reward good, de- like they don't reward creative decision-making. They actually reward you just not doing anything at all. And I didn't really like that. And I could sense that when I started doing afterwards jujitsu and traveling and all that kind of jazz, I kind of bought into that, like, oh, no one, like I can do whatever I want or whatever it may be. But it was just because I didn't want to be controlled and I didn't want to earn that money. Kind of That's how that's the only way I knew how to earn money at the time, in an environment that controlled. And that's how I was trying to rebel subconsciously against it. I didn't pair that up until now, but that's a really great point.
1: Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. If money was used to control us, and we want to reject that control, we essentially have to reject money. Like that's that's how we're gonna we're gonna get to that mechanism. And so it's it's doing the hard work of uncoupling that and realizing like, hey, money actually creates freedom, not control.
0: Yeah, and this has been really great. One last question because this is something that I was curious about that I haven't been able to fit into any of these money stories. Okay, those guys that in 2019 were going crazy about crypto. And you can tell that it was nothing about them really understanding what's going on, but just a wish that something could save. Them. Where does that fall in? The people that go into these crazy investments just because they hope something will save. them.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's really interesting. You know, uh, I, I'd have to think about where that falls kind of into this uh, framework, but I, but I think it's going to fall in this risk bucket, right. Of, of, this high risk, irresponsible with money. Uh, I don't worry about money. Like I want something, I want it to be easy. I want it. Mm. I want it to come save me. and, and FOMO is, is real. And so I think there's probably a lot of ways to get to that place. Like we all kind of want, uh, uh, the, the life raft, like the magic, the magic pill that we're going to wake up and all of a sudden be a, a Bitcoin millionaire. Right? Like that's, that's the dream. I, I think that, probably most of humanity lives with and it it probably doesn't really matter what your money story is. Like there's some allure to that for all of us. Right. And and even as a, as a savvy investor, like as Bitcoin's running up, I bought some, right. Like, and I, I had already made some money with Bitcoin, but like, as it's, as it hits new highs, like there is, there's a fever pitch that starts to happen. It's like, Oh my God, am I, am I missing out? Right. And so a lot of that is driven by, by FOMO Um, and, and again, yeah, that, that idea of easy money. And so, uh, I think all of us probably all susceptible to that at some point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. So I want to say, first off, thank you for your time. This was a really interesting conversation. I really love the, the framework that you have and how this all works. Can you please tell people how they can learn more about you? How they can follow you, how they can join possibly one of your programs.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at mbrown.co. Uh, I give a free, or I send a free weekly newsletter on finance. Uh, a lot of it is unwinding some of these money stories and, uh, that comes out on Fridays. You can go to unbreakablewealth.com and sign up there. And then, yeah, if you're interested in, uh, diving in the, in the coaching programs, it is by application only. We want to make sure that, uh, People in the program are a fit to be able to take advantage of the strategies that we teach. Uh, but you can head over to UnbreakableWealth.com and uh, apply, and uh, yeah, we'll have a conversation about, about whether the program is a fit for you or not.
0: Yeah, and I want to say first off, we're going to have all these links in the show notes. So you guys can find them there. That's number one, two. I'm actually subscribed to Mike's newsletter. It's a really good newsletter. Like, highly actually recommend. Not just to, like spam your inbox. That's really, really good stuff. Very interesting reads. That's number one. And again, man, I want to say thank you. So to kind of recap. 10 wealth stories that entrepreneurs carry. Some mix of them. One, rich people are evil. Two, I don't deserve what I have because of guilt. Money requires hard work. And four, fear of success. Five, I'm irresponsible with money. Six, my self-worth is my net worth. Seven, I don't need to worry about money. Eight, there will never be enough. Nine, money is just not for me. And 10, money is a tool to exert power. So if I don't want to be controlled, I need to
1: avoid it. I think yeah, these are yeah. really
0: powerful things guys and I want to say Mike again thank you for sharing these lessons with us any last thing you want to say before we get going for today
1: Yeah I mean I, I we already talked about it but I want to just just reiterate that like all of these patterns evolve to keep us safe so it's, it isn't about getting rid of these things it's about understanding in what, when and which context we want to use these because sometimes they still might keep us safe so we don't want to eliminate these from our lives they can become superpowers if we're aware when they become limitations. So uh, I would say that. And then the, the second thing I would say is, you know, um, if there's a story you feel like that doesn't fall into this certain category, you know, recognize there's a lot of flavors. These, these have kind of been distilled down from a lot of conversations. Everybody's got their own unique story. There's always nuance, and it's probably a combination of some of these. These are just the most common ones that I've seen, and, and people really do kind of align into these buckets the more and more I do this work.
0: Yeah, awesome. All right. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate you being on the podcast, and we will see everybody next week. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Elite Performance Podcast. If you know someone else who would benefit from it, please share it with them. Three last things before you go, though. If you feel like someone else with your exact skill sets and abilities could be accomplishing more than you currently are, here are three ways I'd love to help you stop playing small, conquer whatever is holding you back, and really win big. First, we have Three Quick Ideas Tuesday. It's a weekly email with three quick ideas around one aspect of Elite Performance and how to approach it differently to get better and faster results. People say it's the most thought-provoking and actionable two minutes they spend in their inbox each week. It's easy to sign up to and easy to cancel, and you can sign up at edamomrani.com three ideas. Two is the Elite Performance Micro reports. It's a nothing-held-back, five-part system to uncover the blind spots you didn't even know were holding you back from being at your best. Each module is no more than five minutes. It's jam-packed. You can see it, use it, and win, and it's completely free at edamarmorani.com slash course. And number three, lastly, if you want to dive in and aggressively level up, the Arena Performance Accelerator might be for you. It's a six-week intense sprint for ambitious entrepreneurs who want to go to the next level. It's an interactive live coaching program where I'll be personally working with you in a very hands-on way to get you clarity on what you want, commit to the exact actions that will make that happen and develop the confidence and courage to execute and what will actually make all the difference for you and your business. You can learn more and apply at etamamorani.com arena. And you can find all of these links in the show notes below or go to etamamorani.com and have a look around. Until next time, who dares wins.